0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Spawn Camp. Each week, we like to focus on the games and media that we love and the positive things that set them apart. Today, I am not joined by Tony, your usual host, but we're going to have fun anyway, because I have two great guests with me. Um, I'm Angel, by the way. (laughs) I am usually on these episodes. I'm a a game programmer in Florida. And today I am joined by Trinity and Trey. Um, How are you guys? How are you, Trinity?
1: I'm doing so well. I'm just like very stressed out this week because of uh, trying to buy a house, sell a house, try to play games, try to work my full-time job and, you know, just living the dream. That sounds
2: very stressful. (laughs) How are you doing, Trey? Um, I'm doing a lot better now that I'm talking to somebody else whose name means three.
1: Oh, how wonderful.
2: But yes, I've met other Trey's. I haven't met a Trinity yet. So hello, Trinity.
1: Hello, Trey. Pleasure to meet you. I have met One trinity in my life. And let me tell you, that was a very weird experience being a person that whenever my name is being yelled, it's always referring to me or I'm in a church. One of the two options.
2: (laughs) Do you ever get any matrix questions?
1: Oh, yes. Constantly. One of my interviews, (laughs) one of my interviews, a very senior leader walked in and asked me red pill or blue pill.
2: Oh, God. Oof.
1: Yep. But yes, so absolutely I've had that experience.
0: <laughs> Since my name is Angel, I never get anyone comment anything about my name.
1: I couldn't tell if there was a bit of like longing in that or a little bit of um oh, you know that was pride.
2: <laughs> oh it was sarcasm.
1: Oh no. <laughs>
2: Crap. One time we went to Universal and they had a shtick where we were doing uh crowd participation. And Angel had to be an evil scientist, so they go to like each person, be like, "What's your name, Clark? Evil Clark." And it's, what's your name, Angel? Evil Angel. <laughs> That's so fun. I got that memory back. You've preserved that memory. You're welcome.
0: <gasps> Wait. Speaking of preservation, I can intro today's topic. So, <laughs> was that clunky? No, that was beautiful.
1: I loved it. I liked
0: it. Thank you. Uh, so we decided we wanted to talk about games preservation which is something I think is a, a huge, very important topic that not a lot of people know about. So I'm excited to talk about it this episode. Before we get into that, we'll do our usual quick, like, what have you been up to? So what have you been up to, Trey?
2: Oh, God, so many things. <laughs> um, all of them work related. It's been a while. You have a lot to choose oh, from. Um, so actually now I'm reading uh, Disrupting the Game, which is a book by Reggie Visa May who is a advisor on the corporate board of my company, Rogue Games. So that's a lot of fun. And just a little subtle required reading. <laughs> was it like in your company slack? Like, hey, everyone, this
0: book came out, wink, wink, nudge, nudge.
2: I was actually the one to post it in the company slack and make that joke. But um nice. I, I think a lot of people are reading it. It's actually an amazing book so far. The book gets into his background, like a lot of personal stories, and how he applies the lessons to it. And Firstly, I'm really into self-help books, so this kind of scratches a bunch of itches at once for me.
1: As an HR professional, there's nothing I love more than mandatory fun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Trinity, what have you been up to?
1: Yeah, so I mentioned it briefly, but I am currently trying to sell my own house, buy another house uh, in this economy, and um, (laughs) it needs my- I know. It's just unbelievable. So my, my entire desk has been downgraded to an end table at this moment, which I cannot wait to be in a new space and have everything just nicely set up and be able to play games more more easily. Right now, um, I don't know. It's kind of a strange thing. I almost feel like there's a burden of entry in order to try to play games or like do things that are actually relaxing, which is so counterintuitive because I know that they are relaxing, but it's stressful to go and actually do that so right now I'm reading uh, a lot of emails which is probably the most depressing thing I've said in a while
0: that's real sad that counts as media
1: fantastic
0: (laughs) any good emails any emails you want to recommend
1: oh my gosh I love (laughs) when people are just a little little sassy a little passive-aggressive it makes me so happy all day long
0: that's the best as per my last email that's the one I, is the most venomous phrase I think classic. I've ever heard.
1: I sent that in an email once and it was I think the greatest day. Did you feel powerful? Ever. Wow. Oh, I felt very powerful. Oh. It was also um recommended by the company council that I do send that. And Ooh. so it was like vindicated. It wasn't just me saying, Hey, I'd <laughs> like to send this. It was, no, that's exactly what you should say.
0: <laughs> that's the dream. Um, let's see. I think I've been up to a decent amount of things. I think I mentioned this before, and I'm going to mention it again. I'm playing Stanley Parable Ultra Deluxe. I'm going to double up for the first time and mention it again on a podcast episode. Please, everyone, go play (laughs) the Stanley Parable Ultra Deluxe.
1: How is it different from the original one?
0: It's almost a spoiler to expand on that.
1: Okay, understood. Now I'm really excited because you just reminded me that I think I can go open Stanley Parable and get the what's the achievement? There's one. There's one achievement that if you don't open it for like two years or something,
0: it, it's like five.
1: Five. I think I'm there. Yeah. I think I can do this.
0: Uh, but yeah, everyone, please go play this game. It, I th- I want to recommend it to people who don't necessarily think they like to play games, and that's actually my favorite kind of game to recommend. So my my top I don't know, recommenders, right? Like the games I think are the best games like ever are always games I could recommend to, like, my dad or some random person I met who maybe is kind of curious about games. Like, they played stuff in the N64 era, and then they stopped playing video games, and they want to know what makes it so special. Stanley Parable, I would absolutely recommend. Beginner's Guide, which is also by the same guy who made uh, Stanley Parable. And uh, Gris and Journey, like, those kinds of games are such amazing games to just like plop someone in front of a TV and be like, this is what makes video games interesting. This is like an expression of it as an art form.
1: I love that you mentioned that because just in general, this is a bit of a tangent, but whenever I recommend games to people, I kind of follow that exact same model. If I want it to be something that anyone could play, that my parents could learn, that is really accessible just because I think that there are incredible games out there that um, are really overwhelming and people yes. may never play. They may never, um, be interested in that. But something like there's this little pocket game that we have called Deep Sea Adventure, where you are a, um, a submarine diver and you go down, you try to get treasure at the bottom of the ocean and then you run back up. And I played it on a Starbucks table with my parents one time. So, and it's one of my favorite games honestly ever made that and Splendor, Sushi Go Party, like these are all tabletop games and they're just so accessible and they're so fun and they're brilliant in their gameplay and everything and I just feel like you can bring people into games in so many different ways. Why not bring them into a way that is friendly and approachable and is something that they'll genuinely really enjoy playing that they wouldn't even think is technically, you know, gaming.
0: Yeah, that's exactly the way I feel. Like, I wish I could recommend, you know, Last of Us or God of War or something to somebody like my dad, but I can't, right? But luckily, there's a bunch of great games that I could recommend to him and other people that I think are very artistic and emotional. I try to recommend Florence to everyone. That's like a 30-minute game you can play on your phone that'll make you cry. It's just very cool, very art.
1: All right, sounds like I'm going to cry today then.
0: (laughs) Please play Florence, and I'm sorry in advance. I I...
1: I will. (laughs) Thank you for the (laughs) recommendation.
0: It's so, so good. Okay, so we'll dive into our topic, uh, which was not a graceful transition, but that's okay. Uh, We want to talk about games preservation today. The, The fairly large topic of games preservation, basically, games are kind of old now. For those that don't know, games preservation is becoming like a pretty significant problem. It's something that people are thinking about a lot.
1: Let's start there. What's a game that over the last, call it 10 years, you've really wanted to play and you just haven't been able to find it?
2: That's a good question. For me, that's definitely uh, Shrek 2, the video game. (laughs) That's (laughs) such a good answer. (laughs)
0: It was just like... Ugh. Is it missing or is it just like...
1: That's not what I really was want
2: expecting. To so personally, I actually don't know if it's been remade. I would be surprised if it's been um, restored just because like that was from a, a very different time in games.
1: Did this game come attached to a cereal box? Like, help me understand more.
2: <laughs> this was an honest to God licensed game um, in the age where most licensed games, for whatever reason, were just... Terrible. And so they would be, you know, just kind of quick cash grabs that would be released in part to promote the movie and in part to just like, you know, extract whatever they could out of it at a higher price point than you would for a movie. But in any case, like Trek 2 was fun and it came out at a time where it was perfectly aimed at me. So the context was I would be in this sort of kind of after school daycare hangout center. And we would just wait for our parents to pick us up. This game was perfect because you could jump in and out. You had four controllers set up to play the four characters from the movie and you could just like tap the X button and get in. And it was a bunch of mini games and a brawler and a rhythm game in there. So it gave a lot of variety of play and it kind of ages well in how like Shrek became this huge meme, but also like at the time it was just genuinely good, which is very surprising. Otherwise, I've been very fortunate in that most of the games that I like have been preserved quite well. Um, My favorite example of that is Nightseal Republic 2, The Sith Lords, which is a Star Wars game that was infamously uh, released incomplete, but there was enough left inside the data files of the game that modders were able to complete it. It took a long time, like more than 8 years I think, but they finished it. And it's called the the Sith Lords restored content mod and you can just download it on Steam and have it be a part of, you know, your game officially. And also you can download Knights of the Republic to the Sith Lords on your mobile phone now, which I never would have like imagined.
1: Incredible. Yeah,
2: it's nuts. Wait, how official
0: is it when you say officially? Like did uh, was it bioware who made the the game did they like officially release this so
2: this was obsidian no and they didn't officially release it when i say basically official i mean more that you have one click and this mod just installs from steam it's i think it's almost default or is default but it like wow. gives you access to that mod very easily and it just adds in a bunch of content that was missing in 2004 and now in you know 2022 You can play the full vision. That's such a good example.
0: That and Shrek. There's actually a lot I want to get in there. But first, actually, Trinity, what is your game? You asked the question. Now you have to.
1: Yes, of course. (laughs) So originally it was Banjo and Kazooie. And I was able to emulate it on Dolphin. But it is unforgiving. The game, (laughs) I I was doing a great job, having a fun time, you know, hitting honeycombs, running around, reliving the best parts of my childhood. And then I made it to the swamp where there is some incredibly fine-tuned platforming required. And I'm not that good anymore. I used to be great at it. And then I went back to play it again. I'm like, this is so hard. And the emulator... I think was making it just like slightly more challenging, just everything connecting to each other. So now that um, one of my favorite things that has come about is some of the things that Nintendo is doing around games preservation, specifically allowing people to just have access to their old games, whether it's through the the SNES Classic or just the Nintendo Online and then giving access to all – not all, but a large uh, catalog of N64 games. So through that, I've been able to replay – Ocarina of Time and Banjo-Kazooie and all Majora's Mask and a lot of other games that I thought I would not ever be able to play again. I love when publishers, producers, independent releasers are able to take on this work because it's huge. You don't just open your eyes one day and go, we'll put this cartridge into this non-existing slot and then ta-da, we can play this game again.
0: Between your example and Trey's, you touched on, like, everything I wanted to mention. So, that's perfect. <laughs> I'll give my quick answer. Mine is actually PT, which stands for Playable Teaser. Oh. And it's a fairly recent example. So, I, without going down the big spiral of it, in the PS4 era, there was a game released by Konami that was developed by Hideo Kojima, famous for making the... Um, Metal Gear. Metal Gear. <laughs> yes. So... Famous for making the Metal Gear games and he uh, made a Silent Hill playable teaser, like a, a game that would be released in order to promote what would be a future Silent Hill game. And due to a bunch of drama and crazy stuff, many of which I think were reflected in the product that he put out, that game was canceled. He no longer works with Konami and the entire playable teaser was removed from the PlayStation store. And now impossible to download or play. And I have a very distinct memory with Tony, actually, of going over to his house and we played through the teaser, which was probably under an hour of playtime. And I'm telling you, it was the best horror game experience I have ever experienced. It's amazing. And I don't want to go replay it sometimes because i think it might like rewrite my memory of it but i know when i played it it was just like incredible and it's influenced me a lot and it doesn't exist there's a couple people who have like sold ps4s with the game installed on it and those ps4 sell for significantly more because it's the only way to get the game now so that's definitely my example
1: so you've definitely bought a phone with flappy bird already installed <laughs> on it right it's, it's that exact thing yeah <laughs> Sorry that's all I could think about right there.
2: <laughs> so to contextualize even more, PT was this huge internet phenomenon at the time. Like you could not log in without, you know, seeing stuff from it and people would have their own unique experiences to it that you could not just recreate. Like usually if you were to follow the steps of a guy, you could find something that let you, you know, remake the conditions, but people were getting ghost sightings and they were each contributing to this huge puzzle that Kojima put out there, and it became apparent that this thing was, one, like, really advanced for its time. It it looked incredible, but it was also built on the simple concept of the looping hallway. And for something that was so repetitive, it was weird that you would keep finding things that were different from what everybody else was experiencing.
0: Yeah, exactly. It it was, (laughs) it's so infuriating because it was like a masterpiece, (laughs) I loved it so much, and the fact that it literally doesn't exist is such an interesting conundrum for me. Like, how do I recommend it, right? Like, there was this great game. You're just going to have to take my word for it. Like, you cannot get it. And there's a bunch of fan projects for PT where people have, like, a copy of it on their PS4, and they obviously can't redistribute it. So, they use it as a reference and then have recreated it, like, everything hand recreated the game to get it as close as possible i've played a couple of them and they're pretty close but there's just i i don't know if if there's some differences or if it was just like my you know mental state at the time but it's not quite that kind of brings me to one of the major things i wanted to talk about in this topic which is so often games preservation ends up being a project that the gaming community takes on Like Trey's example about Knights of the Old Republic 2 and how over a series of years, fans have like recreated the game's like missing content. PT is an extreme example where people have like literally rebuilt the game from scratch. But there's so, so many examples of people finding missing content that was either never released or was really, really hard to get and have made it accessible often These are pirating groups, and there's a lot of history there that I'd like to get into briefly later with uh, GOG. Also, there's a lot of that in the emulation kind of space. And Trinity, you mentioned you emulated Banjo and Kazooie, which I think is available now through Nintendo, which is like fantastic. But for so, so many games, even still on Nintendo, the only way to play them is through an emulator like Dolphin. And that's so complicated, because it's not like legally allowed. And it's something that fans have just spent like years and years working on for no profit.
1: It's so interesting, because I feel like a lot of these things come from genuinely adoring games. And a lot of the things that people do in order to preserve these games are illegal because of licensing. And then those licensing, even when you're trying to figure it out is so complex, so challenging. And I, I guess I'm just glad that I haven't heard of any massive lawsuits of someone trying to emulate a game and then being punished for it because it's it's the only alternative right now. And I'm just so grateful to the people that kind of take this on and are willing to put in the hours just because they genuinely appreciate it and they want other people to to experience how great of a game it is.
0: Yeah. Uh, the Shrek example is another one where there's no way that's going to get a remake. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Like, you'd need to get the like the film license rights for Shrek on top of, like, the development company that made it. There's it,
2: no even way if we know those files still exist somewhere. That's a huge point. That's right. Um, I, I
0: forgot, like, I didn't research this super extensively, but I heard that Final Fantasy VIII was, like, lost at Square Enix. They had, like, a version of it that was, like, really old, and I think this happened also with Final Fantasy VII, where sometimes these companies, especially when these games are like 10, 20, 30 years old, they just don't have very good practices for storing all of the data. And for those that don't know, a finished game cannot be used very effectively to remake that game. You need the source code, the source files and art, all of those things, besides being way more data than the final game is, it, it's not a two-way process, right? You can't go from source code to game, and then from game to source code, unfortunately.
2: The other thing that contributes to it is you might call it poor storage practices, but there are poor storage mediums. I remember being a kid in high school, and I was advanced for bringing a portable hard drive with me, but if that thing fell... I was doomed. Yep. Uh, before that, I even had like a non-portable one. So I would need like a straight up wall plug in order to like back up my files.
1: You mentioned before around just the complexity of figuring out even where all that information is, whether it's stored correctly, incorrectly. Um, I I would love to see you walking around, try with your plug-in uh, hard drive.
2: Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Portable I, hard. I had so many wires hanging <laughs> off of me in high school.
0: There's got to be some hard drive at these companies that's, like, in a glass container with, like, laser security.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, and then it's just back to sometimes these things are split across multiple areas. So um, the game that I should have mentioned earlier that I am waiting for (laughs) with bated breath is Diddy Kong Racing. Diddy Kong Racing, though, is a joint partnership between Rare and Nintendo – I think three of the characters from the game are licensed separately through Rare and now are owned by Microsoft. Does that mean that I never get to play Diddy Kong Racing ever again in the future? That's really heartbreaking.
0: That's kind of the most fascinating part of this is the legal side of it. And one place where I heard a lot about this was in a no-clip documentary about GOG, which stands for good old games. And they're actually a spinoff of the Polish company CD Projekt, which are the development studio who made like the Witcher games. And they have a long, long history inside of Poland, where before like the Soviet Union collapsed, right? And they were one of those Eastern Bloc countries that were under communism. They had no way of receiving software and games from the Western world. Legally. So that entire region was pirating games. And that created this kind of culture in Poland where everyone was pirating or like selling secondhand. And even if you were paying money and you thought you were supporting the developers, you weren't. And it makes for this really interesting story where CD Projekt were tasked with kind of selling things in that market. What they figured out was you should always use the carrot and never the stick. The way they got people to buy things in Poland was by packing a bunch of like awesome manuals And mouse pads and like cool goodies and having like a really good Polish translation and a really awesome box. And they were able to sell games like Boulder's Gate and be very successful. So then in the future, when they were now doing very, very well because of The Witcher and just being a successful company, they wanted to kind of give back. So they created this company called GOG, which has to be mentioned in any discussion about games preservation, because they were actually going through, they have teams of people dedicated to preserving old games particularly pc they hope they can get into console one day but there's like exponentially more issues with that but essentially they have teams of people that are finding old games released even like before like windows like dos games and they'll port them over so they work with windows 10 windows 11 whatever they'll pack them without any kind of like weird security features that those games used to have to be anti-pirating and they'll like just update them Make them accessible to people. And the story of how they deal with legal issues is fascinating because there's a bunch of games where they'll start investigating, like, okay, who owns this game? We want to try and save it. And they'll end up for years going down the spiral of like, they'll talk to the original company and they don't have the rights anymore. And then they found the company that does have the rights and they don't do video games anymore. And this was a deal done in like the early 80s and they have to like go through a bunch of paperwork and sometimes they just cannot find who owns the game and they can't legally re-release it and it becomes this like just this huge mess because none of this was like standardized back then
1: i i love talking about the the carrot versus the stick approach though because you're absolutely right people love exclusive content they love things being created and being high quality and getting that um that access to that and feeling that kind of sense of ownership. And so that's the that's the carrot side that I think they very, very intelligently chose to go towards. And honestly, it was the only option that they had. Um, yeah. The stick side of it is anything from Netflix, who is currently trying to scavenge onto any customers that they possibly can by punishing people for sharing passwords. I don't know how that's going to work out for them. Not well. Um, Not well, probably. But then the other example of it is I think the day that we all heard you wouldn't download a car, we all thought, yes, absolutely I would download a car. Why wouldn't I? And now I want to try. So I just so appreciate (laughs) that CD Projekt understood this is how you respect this gaming community almost. And I don't mean that in a authoritarian way, just in a people genuinely love games. So acknowledge the fact that they genuinely love those games and want to experience them and give them great content and really put that work in in order to bring that experience back to people. And that's what they're asking for.
0: You know, one example of GOG succeeding actually was Star Wars. And I forgot exactly how they pulled this off, but- There were a lot of Star Wars success stories. There were so many. And I think a lot of them were recent because- There's so, so many Star Wars games like going back like so many years Mm -hmm. and they would constantly have these requests when they started off doing like this game's preservation thing with GOG where people were like, please bring back this Star Wars game, bring back that Star Wars game. And the rights for that must be horrendous, right? Especially after Disney bought Star Wars. So it's like. Lucasfilm partnered with whatever and ILM and, and THX for a lot of their old games and it's just so many companies were involved and now Disney owns them and it became this mess but I think recently they spoke with someone and in the video this happens like twice I think where they mentioned that they'll, they'll go through months or years with a company and finally they'll find someone who just loves games it'll just be someone at that company that is a gamer that understands that people like have so much passion for this stuff And they'll be the ones that go and do the footwork and like put it together.
1: Thank you. I just feel like that's the core of it every single time. It's someone that just had an incredible experience and they want other people to live that with them.
0: It saddens me that some games might disappear or actually many of them are. You can actually Google like games that have been lost to time, games that you'll never find. There's so many YouTube videos about this and it's either cut content, games that were pulled from stores, whatever, and even like the most minute like little game right someone has a memory with that there's someone who has some anecdote where they like played that game with their kid or their brother or something and they have like just like a really important memory and it's also art
1: i was going to make yet another joke about cereal box games but then i started thinking about old computer games and that i used to play and i'm realizing that can i play where in the world is carmen san diego right now i don't know if i can
0: yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that one was big enough that I hope so.
1: I would hope so, but my current computer doesn't even have a CD-ROM drive. <laughs> I I wonder if it's still at my parents' house sitting there in its case somewhere. That was one of my favorite games playing. God, it was so well made, honestly.
2: Comrade Sandiego, she's a little hard to find. That's kind of the premise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> that, I Go hope away. now- that Gog
0: is searching for her legal rights and they just make their own internal video called Where in the World actually is Carmen San Diego? We cannot find the rights for this game. Um, but yeah, I mean there's there's so much to get into with this topic. We haven't even gotten into like online games. I used to play a lot of World of Warcraft and stuff. And I know that World of Warcraft is trying to do like World of Warcraft classic, but it's not the same.
1: Did you brave World of Warcraft Classic re release when it came out? God, no. That I did. And that was an experience. Um, Oh, goodness. I had never played a WoW game before in my life. And that's a weird
0: place to start. It
1: was a very weird place to start, let me tell you. Um, And in the peak of pandemic boredom, I decided that I was going to learn WoW Classic. And WoW Classic is so mean to its players it does not like its players at all there is nothing that helps you in the entire game there's nothing that helps you figure out where quests are you have no and i'm i'm just wandering through the wilderness and there's like 80 people running past me clearly knowing exactly where they're supposed to go because they played it when it originally released and i'm just running around yelling at things to try to figure out what my quest is supposed to be oh my gosh it was that was a wild experience
0: to be fair, I think that is accurate to 2004.
1: Oh, that was exactly what everyone else felt too. So maybe yeah, I, got I, think the, they it. I got the real experience. That's good.
0: <laughs> but there, there's definitely something to be said about games that because they existed in a certain point in time or because they were online and they were contextualized a lot by, I don't know, the, the decade that they came out in and the people playing it, there's really no way sometimes to bring those games back
1: something else that's really interesting though is just literal hardware preservation and the actual yeah. machines and uh the games that exist. I uh, I have a heartbreaking story about our Nintendo 64 which we loved and adored. It was uh lent out to a friend and you you know, not not when we were really young, but years later someone wanted to borrow it and then they got um unfortunately evicted from their apartment and Almost all of our Nintendo 64 games were stolen. And they're just gone. And that feeling of something that you never know, how are you going to find that again? There's only certain copies of it. I just remembered thinking, how are we going to physically find all of these games and scouring different game stores and Nintendo 64, Um, you know, these old hardware shops that just have an entire cabinet and maybe you're able to find one or two of those games that you really love. So we've been slowly, slowly, slowly recollecting each of these different games, but there's just nothing quite as wonderful as playing that game on that original system.
0: And even with an old like CRT TV.
1: Oh my gosh, yes. The um, the Super Smash Bros. club at my school would only play on CRT TVs. They would bring out five or six of them and bring them to the school because it was the something about latency and uh, I think there was maybe an official reason, but I think they just truly loved the experience of playing Super Smash Bros. on that TV.
2: When it comes to the preservation of games, I'm really glad you brought that up because one thing that is lost to a lot of people, and you'll see it a bunch of times on memes and on various like social media platforms, you'll see people being like, how we remembered this game looking. And it's like, you know, some promotional art to make it look good. And it's like how it actually looked. And they'll show like the polygonal art of the character, which is wrong because it did not look like that on a CRT TV. It looks gorgeous. Um, they would have CRT because that was the only thing they had. So they leveraged the medium to make it look a lot smoother in various places, um, especially for pixel art. Like there was so much stuff that when you would draw it in 2D on a CRT TV, it would simplify the pixels around it. So it was a lot more flattering than what we would consider is the true image. But back then that was the true image because we didn't have LCD TVs.
0: Yeah, and they would have been developing for it, right? Like that that absolutely was what they were targeting. And those games should be played with those. And that's one kind of downside of emulation. Like emulation is not a catch-all. Because one, there's a lot of games that even with really good emulation don't work. So it's a constant effort to find these like rare games and get them to work. But also emulation can change the way the game looks. There's so many tweaks you have inside of any emulator that can make the game look sharper or more polygonal or change the textures out or whatever. And that just is not the same as having an old TV and plugging in an old Nintendo 64 and like hitting the power button and just like playing it the way God intended (laughs) <laughs> With three component color cables,
1: yes, and then the, the next the next thing on top of that is the experience that you're playing. I mean we're all gonna have that healthy dose of nostalgia um I specifically remember one of my one of my earliest memories playing games was my grandmother, who was a elementary school teacher. she could wrap children around her finger and you would have no idea that it was happening she expertly purchased a uh, Super Nintendo, one of the earliest, you know, purchases, um, and she knew exactly what she was doing. She put that thing upstairs, so every single time that we would come over, we'd be so excited to be there. We would run upstairs, play some games. We would um, – we actually, in later years, when we had the the Nintendo 64 plugged in, we had a whole process where we would show up for the for the holiday, we would put in – um ocarina of time or majora's mask and one person would start playing and the other people would go upstairs and be social spending time with family and then one person would go down and kind of tag out and pick up the controller and say okay <laughs> go go say hi to grandma go hang out with the family go be grateful for you know the holidays and everything and then we would just continually we'd restart a game and we would play through it the entire holiday that we were there and i just love that experience of playing games with family or being around people or connecting with other people and that original, uh, Super Nintendo, uh, is now with my brother and my sister in law. And just two weekends ago, we were in Miami, in Florida, visiting my, my brother, sister in law, my parents, and my husband came with me and they pulled, my sister in law pulled out the Super Nintendo and was playing Donkey Kong Country. She grew up Venezuelan and she learned English practically through playing Donkey Kong Country and different uh different Nintendo games and also through watching friends and so it's just something that she holds so near and dear to her heart and my husband kind of grew up playing the game as well so when we we're sitting there in this uh, every family it get together is a little awkward in some way shape or form and the fact that both of them married in um plus plus ones of this family could just sit down and they played Donkey Kong for hours, just trading it back and forth, having a great time, like making jokes, like talking about hidden areas of the game. And we were all just sitting there watching them playing this game. And it was just so, it meant so much to me because it was exactly what that game originally was. It was that Um, that opportunity to connect with people around you, to really feel like you are accomplishing something, and the most important thing, getting out of really awkward family situations.
0: The most important thing, and learning English.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) I'm just like laughing at imagining someone like learning a new language, but they know every word of the DK rap by heart. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean... That's a really good point to end on, right, is games preservation is incredibly important and it's really driven by passion and love for these games. But there's really two sides, right? There's the actual technical side that we should be doing our best to preserve. And then there's also a side that's much harder to preserve, which is the social and cultural and and nostalgic kind of side of these games and the place they held in our hearts as a society and as individuals. And that's much harder But if we do a good job with games preservation, I don't see any reason why like a school might have an old N64 set up to a TV outside and kids can just like, you know, a hundred years from now still play Donkey Kong Country and have a good time, right? And I think that's beautiful.
1: I I think I might cry twice today now. I'm getting ready for number two later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So if anyone wants to reach us and they're listening and they want to recommend some topics or just want to comment on games that they wish they could find there's so many stories out there of weird rare games that emulation hasn't reached yet that are just missing so let us know we are spawncamppodcast at gmail.com if you want to email us we are also spawn underscore camp on twitter and instagram just about everywhere else uh please rate and review it means a lot to us if people want to reach you trey individually uh, where might they do that?
2: You can send all of your Shrek 2 stories to at TreyGameDev on Twitter.com. <laughs> and what about you, Trinity? Is there any way to reach you?
1: Um, No, I think I say it every week uh, for the exact reason that I have never set up my voicemail box on my phone. I Perfect. am unreachable.
0: That's the right answer. Uh, <laughs> and for me, you can still reach me for now. At Angel Game Dev on Twitter, uh, and thank you so much for joining us. Tune in next week. I'm sure we'll have Tony back, and we'll figure out some wacky new topic. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.
1: So long.